morning, Gateway. My name's Bob. I'm going to be your guest speaker this weekend. Uh, it's, good to, it's good to be here. Um, many of you know I got the opportunity, uh, really the privilege to go with uh, some other people from our church this summer to Nicaragua. And a lot of you have asked what was that like and what did it look like and what did it sound like. And uh, it's, it's complicated and we'll try to explain some of it over the next few weeks. But I thought maybe we'd start with just a little quick overview video of some of the things that I got to see and experience while I was there. You ready to go, Jackie? I'm ready. All right. Ready. Harvey? Absolutely. Ready? All right. Mike? Vamanos. Okay. Morgan, anything to say? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> anything in Spanish? All right. Yeah. Yeah. The oh, internet right. is waiting. English or Spanish. Well, 
we had an amazing time while, uh, while we were in Nicaragua. And uh, when I think about <coughs> this summer, I really, have to, I really have to go back a little ways. Uh, hopefully this isn't too confusing. But for me, the journey really kind of started uh, on a serious note about a year and a half ago as I was thinking two years ahead. So hopefully that's not too confusing. But a year and a half ago, I was uh, considering a milestone that was coming in my life, uh, which was a, uh, what, a half century mark. And uh, it, was, it was two years out at the time. And I began to think about that because I had friends that were reaching that point and moving beyond that point. And I was thinking a lot about uh, my life and, and uh and so I took a little time to look back. I like to journal and begin to journal a little bit about uh, the, the previous 48 years of my life and thinking about that. And, and that was really a great process because as I did that, um, I realized how blessed I am and, and um, how great God has been to me and how his plan for me has been way beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And one of the conclusions I came to is if I had known when I was younger how, how much God was going to bless me, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. Um, but anyways, that's a whole other issue. But uh, I began to look uh, at my life over the last uh, couple of years as well. And um, at the same time, I became um, a little bit concerned. In fact, I would say a little bit alarmed at what I was seeing. Uh, because what I was seeing was a, a pattern in my life that I, I have also seen uh, in the lives of, of other believers as well. And it's an alarming thing that happens, and it happens slowly. But it, it looks a little bit like this. You know, when I was younger um, and pretty much had nothing to lose, I found it pretty easy when God would just, you know, like drop some crazy thing in my lap to do, to follow him, to just do it, you know, to pick up and move to Arizona and go to college or move to the Northwest. I mean, who does that or whatever it was, and to follow God that way. But uh, over the years, as I got older, um, I, God had given me many things, and I began to feel like, you know, I had more to lose and began to play it a little bit safe. And uh, what I've noticed, that you, maybe you can think about it this way. If you think about your life as kind of like there's this, there's this bucket and this is your life. This is, this is what you put into your life. So there's stuff that, that you drop into your bucket and there's stuff that other people will put into your life and, and there's stuff that God will put in there. And what I realized was over the last few years of my life, I began to do kind of this work where at first I really trusted God with my life to set the agenda and decided what went in there. I noticed that I was increasingly uh, beginning to, to do this, to become a very controlling person over what I would allow God to put in my bucket, in my life, what, what he could put in my agenda. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'm, I'm a, I, I struggle with being a very controlling person. That, that's one of the issues for me. Um, and, and really beginning to start to say, well, you know, God, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about you putting that in there. And I've seen this pattern in the lives of other people, and it's always different when you see it in other people, but it, it looks a little like this. You'll, you know, maybe as a pastor, talking with somebody and, and hearing what's going on in their life, and, and maybe one day God comes along and he wants to drop a little something in their bucket, put something on their agenda, and they kind of do this, like that's a little fearful, that's a little scary somehow. And so, so sometimes people will do this. They'll, they'll put their hands out and they'll say, God, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to say that. I don't want to sacrifice that. And what they think they're doing is they think they're protecting their lives from something that would be unsafe for them. But what they're really doing is you're never really protecting yourself from anything. But what you are doing is you are beginning to, to, to hold God back. Not just his will for your life. When you, when you hold God back and his will in your life, you're essentially keeping God 
out of that, out of that bucket. Uh, you're keeping, God, God doesn't sit up in heaven um, looking. He's, he's so needy and so forlorn. He has nothing to do. So he, he looks around the earth and says, oh, I got to find somebody that I can get behind. That's not how God works. God's building his kingdom on this earth and God has a plan. And what God's looking for is people who will let them fill their, uh, his, their bucket with his plan. And when people surrender to God and let God determine their agenda, that's where you find God in power, and that's where you see God doing the stuff, and that's where people experience God and the blessings of God. But when we do this, we're not just keeping some of the things of God out of our life. We're really beginning to keep the power of God out of our life. And when we, when we do that, relationally or financially or whatever, when we do that, it starts to become this downward spiral kind of thing because you, you're protecting yourself from what you think is something that might hurt you <clears throat> or be uncomfortable, but you're also limiting the power of God in your life. And then as you experience less of God's power, you begin to take more and more control of the situation until one day, and maybe you've seen this, but you find somebody who one day just kind of crashes and burns in terms of their faith, and you scratch your head and say, where did that come from? It just seems like it happened like that, but it never does. This is what happens when we limit God and his involvement in our life. And what I realized was that I was experiencing that on, on a very, very negative level, a, a, a large level. And, and it scared me. And so I, I did something. I sat back and I remember telling God, I, I have to figure out a way to reverse this trend. And the only thing that I could think of was to try to find some ways to step away from the bucket and just let God begin to have control again. So I began to pray about a year and a half ago. I said, God... Um, I know that there are things you want me to do. I know there's things I've resisted. So I'm going to step away. And what would you want to put in my bucket? And so I began to make, you know, you could call it a bucket list if you want, but some stuff that, that I thought God might want to do in my life before I reached the age of 50. God, what would, you, what would you want to do? And so one of the things, like, immediately God brought along, and it was something that had been kind of, he'd been dangling it over there for a while, was um, the teaching through the book of Ephesians. And that is something that I'd been resisting for a while. It just felt like a little bit above uh, my abilities and, and my skills, and it was very intimidating for me. And uh, I thought that it was just beyond what I could do, but God just kept, you know, hanging that thing over there. So finally I stepped back and said, that's fine. If, if that's what you want to do, your God, you're in control, and, uh, and I let him do it. And I'm glad that I did. It was challenging. It was difficult, but I'm glad that I did it. Another thing that God put over uh, my bucket during that time was, and it doesn't sound very spiritual, but it was just the whole idea of uh, to, to take up running. And uh, I would say that for me, taking up running was a lot more than a physical thing. There were some other things involved, but it, it's something that God had been dangling over there, and I, I'm not a runner, and I don't like to run, but God wouldn't stop, so finally went down. I'm like, well, that's fine, God. I'll, I'll put on some shoes and, I don't know, start running and, you know, see what you want to do. And did it? I'm glad I did. And there's been some other things that uh, over the last few years God has put in the bucket. But one thing that God kept kind of dangling over the bucket, and he'd been putting it over there for years, was the idea of going on a short-term mission trip. And if you're the senior pastor of Gateway, the first trip you have to go on is Nicaragua. It's just like required. The whole fabric of time and space will rip if you don't. And so um, <clears throat> I knew that that was something I needed to do. But I'll tell you, it was nothing new, as, as is often true when you do step away from the bucket and you let God have control. It's usually things that he's been bugging you about for a while. And so I, I kind of, for years now, for, I don't know, eight, nine years, um, every year it would kind of come up, and then every year I would think about all the reasons that I couldn't go, and those reasons were, you know, a enough for me. Um, a lot of things uh, on my list of why I, my schedule was always crazy. Um, there was the finances. Um, there was the, you know, just the whole heat and humidity thing. Not just a huge fan of that. Um, the, the flying, not a big fan of that. As everyone keeps telling me, you're not afraid of flying, you're afraid of, you know, 
flying and suddenly not flying, which is true, but uh, that, that whole thing, there's a lot of stuff involved, and so I let my fears really pretty much control the bucket for years, but uh, this year I was able to step away and say, all right, God, if that's really what you want, then, um, then, then that's what we'll do, because I- I'm going to let you determine what goes in the bucket. What I want to talk about for the next few weeks is that process, because it's never anything that just happens like that. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, that for the next four weeks, this is not a, a short-term missions series by any stretch, but it, it is the context. It's the backdrop to some of the things that I learned. And I'd like to share with you four lessons that just kind of came out of the process of going to Nicaragua and of being there. And today I want to start by just talking about this whole concept of learning to um, relinquish control, um, of being able to, you know, step, step away from the bucket. And let God be God in your life. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to the Old Testament historical book of Nehemiah, which is where we're going to be today. And uh, if you don't have your Bible, I've got it in your notes for you. But if you've studied the Old Testament, you'll know that much of the Old Testament is centered around God's plan to uh, raise up a nation. And that nation was called Israel. It was God's kingdom here on this earth, if you will, in the Old Testament days. And uh, so God makes this nation out of 12 tribes. And if you remember your history, at one point, for various reasons, the kingdom divides. They divide among a north-south boundary. And the 12 tri- or 10 tribes go north, and um, they form the nation of Israel, and two tribes settle south, and they form the nation of Judah. Their uh, capital is Jerusalem. And uh, in about 605-ish years before Christ shows up on this earth, there was a, a king of the Babylonians named Nebuchadnezzar, and he began to make war on, on Jerusalem, on Judah. Now, this war took place over many years, but um, occasionally they would come in and they would attack the city, and every time they would break down part of the wall and, and they would capture a certain amount of people, and then they would carry them back to Babylon in captivity. And they did this in several waves, and eventually they decimate the city, they tear down the walls, um, they, they destroy the temple, and they carry most of the uh, Israelites into captivity. They're now slaves in Babylonia. And, and this is what we call the exile, and it lasts for roughly about 70 years. And then, during this period near the end, um, the, the Bab- uh, Babylon falls to... Um, the Persians. So they come in and, and, and they take over and so they put up the you know, city under new management signs and uh, they tell the Israelites who have been there for a while, they say, you know, well, we want to thank you for coming. It was good to have you, but you're free to move about the country now if you'd like. And so a uh, first wave of them go back to Jerusalem. Um, they're led by a guy named Zerubbabel, and the goal is to go back and to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls. And in those days, uh, the wall was the defense for a city. I mean, if you didn't have a wall, then any old army could come in anytime and just walk in and do whatever they want. But if you had walls, at least you could defend yourself for a while. So you know, that, that was it. So this city, it, they have no walls, and they don't have a temple, they have no economy. And so under Zerubbabel, they go back, and they begin to try to rebuild. But they, they'd never really accomplished rebuilding the walls. And then years later, uh, another guy named Ezra takes a, a large group of people, I think 50, 55,000 people back, and their goal is to go back and kind of reinvigorate what's going on and get those walls built and the temple built. Uh, they don't get the walls built. And now it's 92 years later. 92 years later, and back 
in the original area of Babylon is an Israelite who still lives there, and his name is Nehemiah. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is about. It's kind of his journal. And it starts out this way. It says, the words of Nehemiah. So, this is a journal of this guy, this Israelite named Nehemiah. And we're told that he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, if you read your history books back, uh, about history back then, you'll know that a favorite way of getting rid of somebody in power was to poison them. And so if you were a powerful person or a king, you would often have a cupbearer. Now, there was a job everyone wanted. The job of a cupbearer, basically, was to, te- to test the wine or anything else the king would drink and to make sure that it wasn't poison. <laughs> they didn't have little kits, you know, to put some droppers in there and see if it turns color. There's only one way to do it. Someone had to drink it. And then, you know, everyone would watch him for a few days and see if anything happens to him. And if it didn't, then it was safe for the king to drink the wine. Now, in a, if you had somebody like Artaxerxes, who's uh, over a large empire, his cupbearer is probably not actually the one who's, who's testing the wine and the drink himself. He probably has a whole team of people. You know, probably everybody wanted that job. And uh, his job is <clears throat> just to, to make sure that everything that the king gets is safe. It's really a power job. I mean, you spend most of your time right next to the king. Uh, We know uh, that you were required, for instance, to be well-educated and intelligent, cultured, able to converse with the king. Obviously, the cupbearer was somebody that the king absolutely had to trust or he wasn't going to be the cupbearer. So the cupbearer was often somebody that the king would talk to for advice when making decisions. Now, when a lot of people look at Nehemiah and think about him living uh, where he was living and not living in Jerusalem, some people think that he is outside of the will of God at this point. There are commentators who will say he has no, no uh, business being in Susa at this time. He should have been, you know, working in Jerusalem. Some people think maybe he didn't have any choice. But regardless, in this story, he has to make a decision at what he's going to do at this point in his life. And it tells us that one day, just a, a day like any other day, but his, his brother comes to town. And his brother's been traveling around, and he's been to Jerusalem, and he's seen firsthand the conditions in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah begins to ask him what it's like there. And his brother says it's a mess, and economically, and it, it, it's, it's really a problem. There are no walls, and the city's defeated. And so Nehemiah begins, I think he begins to kind of wonder. He begins to think. I wonder if God is trying to, to drop something, trying to put something in my bucket. It sounds crazy. But Nehemiah is beginning to think, what if God wants me to go back to Jerusalem and be part of the rebuilding? In fact, what if God wants me, the one, to, me to be the one who, who leads that? And I want to notice a couple of things that the book of Nehemiah was so helpful to me this spring as I was trying to figure out what God's will for my life was. And I want to share a little bit about some of the things that I learned. And the first is this. Um, Nehemiah is a guy who learns to pay attention to what God is trying to say to him. In verse 2, it tells us this. He says, now Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, <clears throat> and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, what's interesting to me when I read this is that, uh, that this is old news, All right? There's nothing new here for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is at the hub of information during that day and and, in that region. So it's one of the things that doesn't strike you at first, but he didn't learn anything here he didn't already know. He's heard this many, many... This has been going on for 92 years. So he knows about the walls. He knows about the economy. He knows about the fear. and, And I began to wonder, why is Nehemiah asking questions that he already knows the answers to? 
And again, I think because God's beginning to do something in Nehemiah's life that maybe you and I have experienced at times. Like, maybe you know what that's like. You're kind of going through life, and one day you start to think, maybe God wants me to do this or, or, or get in that relationship or, or talk with that person or share Christ there or whatever it is. And as you begin to process that, you can look back and realize, well, God's been trying to lead you in that way for a while. And maybe you've even had some conversations and heard some stuff that you never really paid attention. So now you want to go back and start to re-listen to those conversations and reconsider that information. And I think Nehemiah is beginning just to gather some information. Now, here's a guy who I think probably had all sorts of good excuses for why he probably shouldn't go back to Jerusalem. I mean, it's been 92 years if, if big hitters like Zerubbabel, you know, isn't that a great name? Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra can't rebuild the walls. And what makes him think that he could do that? Uh, he's never been there. So what would he know about Jerusalem? Uh, he can't just leave his job. He can't just put in 30, day no- 30 days notice and leave the king. Uh, it really wasn't an option for him. Uh, He has no experience in such matters. He he doesn't possess the skills and the resources to solve the problem. It would require a lot of sacrifice on his part. But I think God's beginning to stir his heart. And so he's starting to notice things that he never noticed before. And he's starting to hear conversations in a way that he never heard them before. You know, my first question for you is this. Are you paying attention to the clues that God is trying to put around you? Because I think the tendency sometimes is for us to learn over, over a period of time how to tune out the things that we don't want to hear. We all, we all have those areas in our life, you know. Uh, maybe you're in a conversation and someone starts to talk about something and you don't want to hear about it. You don't want to go down that road. You don't want to think about it. And so, you know, you probably don't do it. But, you know, other people, you know, they can just suddenly, they don't hear anymore what's being said. Or maybe it's a sermon, and you know, you're listening to a sermon, and the pastor starts going down a road you don't want to go down, and so you, I don't know, you check your email or whatever you do, uh, you know, when you get bored in a sermon. Or maybe you open up the bulletin, you know, and you see that they need help in kids' church, and you're like, la, 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 because you don't want to hear it. You don't want to even know. You don't want to know about that, because if you know about it, information might bring obligation, so you just want to just, you don't even want to think about it. But we need to be listening to God. And so this is the first thing that Nehemiah does. He just begins to pay attention to the conversations and the things that are going on around him. And here's the second thing we notice, and that is he's this guy who begins to just dwell. He dwells for a while on this thing. So I'd ask you the question, what do you do when you sense that God is maybe dangling something over your bucket and you're uncomfortable with that or it brings out some fear in you? What do you do when you sense that that might be happening? Do you, do you dwell on it for a while or do you dash? Do you, are you just like, I got to get out of this place? Notice what Nehemiah does. He says, now when I heard these things, remember these are things he's heard before. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I want you to notice a couple of things that, that I noticed as I, as I walked through this passage. The first is this, Nehemiah just sets aside some time to, to begin to process what, what he's hearing. It says, notice it says that he sat down, right? So he, he didn't change the channel or change the subject or I gotta get something busy to get my mind off that. It says he sat down. I love that. Sometimes, sometimes when God's trying to talk to us and put something in our bucket that, that we just need to stop what we're doing and sit down and it says he, he did it for some days. In fact, as we'll find out, he did it for four months, he decides to stop running and stop ignoring and just sit down and make some room in his schedule 
to ask God, you know what, God, I think you might be trying to put something in my bucket. And I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I'm not sure about that. But I'm not going to run. I'm just going to sit here for a while. Have you ever done that? I'm just going to sit here for a while and listen to you because you might be trying to say something to me. And I don't want to move on until I know what that is. The second thing that he did, and I find this really uh, interesting. This is something I really thought about for a while was he allowed himself to, to feel something. And, uh, you know, here's a guy, he's not living in Jerusalem at the time. Um, he, he can't relate to the fear that, that those people must have felt. He's in a safe situation. He isn't dealing with the problems and, and the economy and, and, and all that stuff. And yet, he had the ability to feel something for those people in the midst of that situation. He could do that. And I find that interesting. Now, I don't really think that the point here is that we should all sit down and try to make ourselves cry when we hear about things like that. Uh, but I think there's something to be learned here. I think more than anything, what we need to do is, is stop trying to avoid feeling things that God may want us to feel. Sometimes we begin to feel things for people and, and maybe it's a, we're uncomfortable feeling that way. Or maybe it's a little embarrassing for us. Or maybe it brings up memories or fears or pain that we, we don't want to go down that road. I, I know that feeling whenever I'm around somebody who has a young child that's deathly ill. I just, when I'm around that, it just brings up feelings and fears. And sometimes it's, it's hard to just sit there and be in the midst of that. Sometimes we just, we want to run from that kind of stuff. We want to avoid it. But when I look at Christ, what I notice is a man who, who uh, had a lot of, of powerful emotion in his life. Here's a man who wept and wasn't afraid to do it in front of other people. Here's a man who experienced great joy, uh, anger, sadness. I feel sometimes when I look at Christ and his emotion, I see kind of this, this full-colored, vibrant emotion. And sometimes when I, when I look at my own life, it just seems like I have these dull shades of, of, of gray. Because I, I'm uncomfortable sometimes, allowing myself to, to express emotion in, in front, of, front, front of other people. Maybe that's not your problem, but I think more than anything else here, Nehemiah is a man who just allows himself to feel something for someone else. When we were um, in Nicaragua, one of the things that I had, you know, received lots and lots of counsel about is you're going to see a lot of poverty there, and, and, and that's, that's definitely true. And I think you kind of, at least for me, I kind of buffered myself a little bit before I got there. And uh, we were, there's some pictures from an area called Cristo Rey, and um, there's just, just, unbelievable poverty there. And so it's an interesting thing for me the first time I'm going there. And um, I've seen a place like this. So this is a, a typical dwelling there in, in Cristo Rey. And it's about, I don't know, it's probably about 15 by 15. Um, you've got uh, just pretty much one room. Um, you've got metal side, you know, siding on there. You've got a metal roof. Um, these places here, uh, they didn't have electricity um, they don't have running water in their places. We're talking 95 degrees and 75, 80% humidity. It's a dirt floor. And so for me, and maybe some of the other people that have been on the trip can relate to this, but you know, the first time you see one of these and you see someone living there, it's a little, it's a little shocking, you know, and you just, it, when you try to imagine, now it's easy to just drive by and just kind of buffer, but if you stop for a minute and imagine what it would be like to live in there, it's a little... It's a little overwhelming. Um, 
this is a, and, and then you start to see more of them and more of them as you drive down the street. And uh, the more of them you see sometimes, it, the, the more you just kind of, you know, it just kind of gets to be uh, a little too much. Here's a guy and he's out making uh, something to eat and that's, that's his place. That's, that's all that he has. One day, um, my son and I, we, were, we went for a walk, took a little break and, and walked down and that's where I took most of these pictures and just walking down the street trying to imagine what it would be like. It's hard for us, I think, to really enter in to what's going on because we got uh, our return trip ticket in our back pocket, you know, and uh, we got a, you know, clutch of water in our hands and, and sometimes it's a little hard, I think, to really enter into what it must be like to live there and, and, and the poverty and the difficulty. We were walking down the road and, and these boys saw that we had a camera so they ran out and they wanted their picture taken, you know. So they, they posed for the camera and I take their picture and then as soon as I was done taking the picture and I was feeling pretty good because they were laughing and giggling and then, and then the boy off to the right, he comes up and he grabs my leg and he, says, leg and he says, take me back home with you. And I was just, while I was there, you know, and then I had my son next to me and of course, I'm beginning to feel this stuff, but I, I was remembering, but I'm a man. I'm a man, and men don't cry in public. And so I just, you know, decided I was just going to suck it up, and, you know, it'd just be really uncomfortable for everyone, right? So I did it for them, um, to, to, to not cry. But the, one of the things that I walked away with was this. If, if you're in a situation like that, and you don't feel anything, you're probably moving too fast, and, and, and that's the tendency that, that I have, and that's maybe the tendency that you have when you, when you start to get in the middle of that, that you just, I just need to keep walking because if I stop, I'm going to start to feel something. And if I, you know, if I start to feel something, well, there's no telling where this is going to go, you know? So Nehemiah is a man who stops and he just begins to, to process and he takes time. He begins to feel some things. I think that God wanted him to feel. He, he begins to pray and he fasts over a period of time. He takes some extended time to talk to God. And if you read in chapter 1, we read a little bit about his prayer. And he prays about some interesting things. For instance, he confesses his own sin in his prayer. He confesses the sin of the Israelites, which I find intriguing because he doesn't know them and he hasn't been there. And yet he begins to pray for them. He's, he's confessing their sins, which I just find so intriguing. And he's praying for wisdom in his own life. And he's asking God, God, I, I pray that you'll open a door so that I can do something about this situation. And he begins to pray, and he begins to fast. And, and fasting is just kind of a, it's ratcheting up prayer a bit and saying, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat for a period of time and so that I can devote that time to prayer. It's a way of just beseeching God and saying, God, I need you in this situation. And so he begins to do that. In fact, he does it again. He's, he's praying and fasting over a period of four months. During this time, he also begins to investigate the Word of God. And, and it doesn't say in the passage that he has a Bible study. Um, in fact, we have to infer some things here. One of the things we know about this period in history was um, this is where um, synagogues began to sprout up and rabbis began to come on the scene. And, and so you would go to a local synagogue. You didn't have an Old Testament with you. you. You couldn't carry that thing around. But you would go to the synagogue and the rabbi would teach. And if you wanted to know the Word and take it with you, you would, you would memorize it. So apparently, Nehemiah, though, we know that he's been studying the Word and memorizing it because he prays and he's quoting God back to God, which I, I think is great. One day he's praying to God and he says, God, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. He's just reminding God of what he said 
Uh, he said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That, that's what had happened. That's why they had originally been taken away to Babylon in the first place. But if you return to me and you obey my commands, then even if you are exiled people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. And so we know that Nehemiah has been digging into the word and he's been looking because when you begin to sense that maybe God wants to put something in your bucket and you're trying to figure out, is this what God wants or is this just me? A good place to, to, to investigate that is always in Scripture. Because you may not, you know, open up your Bible and see an actual answer to the question you're asking, but you might find some powerful principles there that you can apply to the situation. God is obviously using his word to speak and to direct Nehemiah during this time. And I find that the word is a powerful place to start, which is why we need to always be reading it and, and looking for principles and, and memorizing the word. And the fifth thing that he does is he's, he's wise and he learns, learns to receive input from others as he's trying to discern God's will for his life. So, for instance, we know that when he's thinking about this whole thing and should I do this or not, he listens to his brother. We, we know uh, he's going to listen to the king. He's going to get advice from the queen. I say that because I found in my own life that when I'm trying to get God's direction, um, I always find the word helpful. I always, always think that prayer is absolutely necessary. But in the end, a lot of times, the way God speaks to me in a definitive nature is he loves to do it through people. And I find that God just maybe seems to delight in doing it through people that I would never expect. And I've kind of gotten used to it after a while. But for me, the whole Nicaragua thing was kind of an interesting process for me because for years I had wrestled with maybe God wants me to go, but and I'm not sure, and I've got all this other stuff going on, and I've got all these fears, and I'm not sure what to do. And, you know, I don't know that it, I, I'm sure it didn't play out this way, but I just kind of, I've, I've pictured in some ways that one day God's in heaven, and he's just like, you know, we just gotta, I gotta get over that. We, we gotta get Bob beyond this, so we're just gonna, let's just play the ace card here. And so one day, I'm, I'm sitting there, and my 14-year-old son at the time walks up to me. This is this last, last spring. He walks up to my wife and I, and he says, Mom and Dad, I've been praying about it, and I think God wants me to go to Nicaragua this summer. And I just remember just thinking, oh, God, you are brilliant. I'm not, I'm not loving this right now, but see, I can, I, I, can, I, can, I can wrestle with my fears of flying and illness and all that kind of stuff, and I can use all that stuff as excuses and everything, but God just knows <clears throat> that there's no way, there's just no way I can say no to my son who thinks God's moving him to go to Nicaragua. I just almost pictured God up in heaven like telling the angels, watch what's about to happen. This is great. You're going to love this. There's nothing he can do. And there's nothing, nothing I can do. But I just remember looking at Christine saying, I just think God just spoke about what he wants me to do. God loves to speak through people. Now, we need to be wise about who we listen to. Um, and we need to uh, receive that advice carefully in conjunction with God's word and with prayer and with the Holy Spirit. I think that's huge. But what I see here with, with Nehemiah is here's a man who, who doesn't make any assumptions and he doesn't let his excuses and his fears get in the way about what God might or might not want to add to his bucket. Instead, I love the fact that he just stops and he dwells and he considers for a while and he gives God a chance to speak into his life before just, just moving on. He dwells there. And, and then here's the third thing that Nehemiah does, and that is uh, he waits. He waits for a while. Now, when God finally kind of 
begins to add something to your bucket. I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times my temptation is just to, okay, I think I know what God wants me to do, so now I'm just going to run ahead. And it's easy sometimes to just to, to do that and get ahead of God. But here's Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, his challenge is, he's under the employment of the king, and there was a little thing, if you were a cupbearer, you couldn't quit your job. I mean, just think about it for a minute. If, if you're a cupbearer and you suddenly give five days notice, that's probably going to look suspicious to the king, and they didn't just let guys go like that. So he doesn't actually have the ability to just quit his job and go. He's going to need the king's permission, and he's going to also need the king's help. So Nehemiah begins to pray. On a daily basis, he's praying to God. I think probably before he goes to work each day, he's, he's praying this. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of, of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Now give your servant success today. He's about to go to work. He's about to be around the king. Uh, Give me success today by granting me favor in the presence of this man. This man is the king. So every day he's about to go to work and every day he prays to God, God, maybe today would be the day. I don't want to run ahead of you. I don't want to make any assumptions. But maybe today would be the day where you would open a door so that I could speak to the king about this thing that you've been putting on my heart. So for four months he's praying this, and for four months he's waiting on God. And then in chapter 2 it starts out this way. Now in the month of Nisan, which is four months after the story started, four months, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I would not been sad in the king's presence before. So few things that we know um, about the Persians and, and the court of the kings. Um, you, you weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. You weren't allowed to do that. And um, the punishment is you could be banished from the kingdom at, at, at the least. So you weren't allowed to do that. You just always had to be happy when you're around the king. You weren't allowed to talk to the king unless he talked to you first. And you weren't allowed to make requests of the king unless he, again, gave you permission first to do that. So here's Nehemiah. He's, his tongue's tied. He can't do anything. He can just go to work every day and hope that God will open a door for him. And it says, so the king asked me, right? Because the king can tell he looks sad. The king asked me, why does your face look sad when you're not ill? This can mean nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, right? So he's scared because he knows this could be the end of his career right here and right now. And, but he says to the king, he's sensing, well, you know what? He opened the door and I've been praying for this and I've been waiting for this and this is scary. I'm a little afraid, but I'm going to go ahead. He's afraid, but he's going to go ahead and take the step. And so he says to the king, may the king live forever. See, he's just buttering up the king. May the king live forever. The king's an awesome guy. He's a great dude. Now, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah's just like, I'll just throw a little thing out there. I'm not asking for anything. I'm just saying, this is what you asked. You asked why, so I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to be very careful about it. And then the king said to me, what is it you want? So it's just like this door gets flung wide open, right? And Nehemiah's just got to be standing there going, yes, inside, because he's been praying for this. He's been waiting for this. Nehemiah cannot make this happen. Only God can make this happen. So notice what he did. Before he answered, he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven, <laughs> just so everything goes well, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, butter you up, butter you up, and then let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And that's his, his open door. And God begins to show Nehemiah that in fact he is sovereign and he's involved and he's moving and it's time now. It's time for him to move forward. In verse 6 it says this, Then the king, with the queen sitting behind him, 
or beside him, asked him, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. And so I set it a time. I love this because now he's been waiting, he's been praying, he's been wondering, and now he gets confirmation from God. And now he can just, he can just move back and let God fully drop that thing in his bucket. And, and here's what I think is so important. He can do it with confidence. Now, not only can he move forward, but he has confidence that God is involved in this thing. And that's going to be important because he's going to face tremendous trials. His life is going to be threatened. Um, He's going to have to deal with all sorts of things. He's going to be there for over 12 years. And there are going to be times when he needs, at the end of the day, to sit down and go, man, this is tough, this is hard, but I know this is God's will because I remember, I remember the day that God opened that door. So when trying to determine what God wants to put in your bucket, I think Psalm 46.10 has some good advice for us. It says, be still. Some translations say, cease striving. Just stop. Just sit down for a minute. Stop trying to take control. Stop trying to call the shots. Just stop and sit down and know God says that I am God. I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. You don't have to worry about that. That will happen, and I'll make it happen, and I will be exalted on the earth, and in your life as well, so you can relax a little bit. You don't have to take charge. You don't have to be in control. You don't have to do this thing. You don't have to do it. Just move away from the bucket. I'm God. I'm in charge. It's going to be okay. I would ask you, is there some place where you need to do that right now? Some place where you just need to stop for for a moment and just wait. Wait on God. Because your tendency is to, to move forward and take control. And, and, and the last thing that he does, and we've already seen it here, is that once God opens a door, he takes the step. He does that. Now, if you're a planner, if you're, you're a control freak, anyone a planner or a control freak in here besides me, anyone? Anyone sitting next to one that didn't raise their hand? Anyone? <laughs> yeah. See, if you're one of those people, then you know what I'm talking about. Letting God add stuff to your bucket without any control, it can be very difficult, right? Because people like us, we want to know all the details first. I, 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 I want all my fears dealt with first. I want to have the blueprints first. I want to know what the problems are going to be, and I want to know the answers up front. But God didn't give Nehemiah the whole plan. God just gave him a little piece at a time. I mean, first, God began to I put it on his heart, Right? And, and so what, what could Nehemiah do? He didn't like rush out and, and sign on the dotted line to go to Jerusalem. He didn't do that. He could just, the only step he could take was to begin to think about it. So he, he began to dwell on it. He wasn't committing. He wasn't signing anything. He just decided he could dwell on it. And so he did. I'll take that step. I'll pray. I'll gather information. And, and I'll make a few plans. And then when he did that, there came a point and the, the, next, the only next step he could take was just to wait. So he took that step. I'll just, I'll sit back. I'll stop trying to be controlling big God and I'll wait and I'll wait and I'll wait. And then one day, a door opened, right? And when that door opened, he could take a step. And so he took that step. Nehemiah got from, from Susa all the way to Jerusalem. He got there just one step at a time. God didn't reveal the, all the details and then move him forward. And usually that is the way that God works in our life. For me, that, that's how I got from here to 3,100 miles south in Nicaragua. It's just one little step at a time. My son comes in and says, I like to go. I did not quickly call up 
Jackie and say, sign me up. She'll tell you that. And I was like, oh man, I'm afraid where this is headed. But I will just, I will think about it. I will pray about it. And so I could do that. So I prayed about it. And then there came a day when I could do, you know, a little bit more. So I began to research about it. And then I, I thought, well, the next step would be to talk to my wife and my, my friends and, and the staff because it was going to require a lot of adjustments from people. And, and, you know, everybody pretty much just laughed and said, yeah, you should definitely go. And I, that scared me. And um, so, you know, then I filled out an application because that's all I could do and went through the training. And, you know, just you, you get there one step at a time. But if you sit around and go, God, I need everything answered first, well, you're never going to get there. My question is, has God been trying to put something in your bucket and it just seems so impossible? Or there's so much fear? Or it just seems like there's not enough details? But you could take one step. There's, there's one thing. You could, you could maybe pray about it. You could dwell on it. Maybe get some information. Maybe ask some people around you. Maybe God's already opened the door. You already know. He's just waiting. Everyone's waiting. Because he opened a door for you. For 92 years, no one has been able to rebuild these walls. And one man says yes to God. Okay, God. Yeah. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elal. And notice, it took 52 days. 92 years waiting. Nehemiah pulls his hands away from the bucket. It takes 52 days. God can do amazing things to people who will step back and say yes to him. When, uh, when we were coming back into the country from Nicaragua, we flew into Houston, and I've never flown into Houston before. I didn't realize what a big airport, what a big hub that Houston is. And so when you come in, there's a lot of people coming in from uh, um, outside the country. So you have to get your baggage, and, and then you have to go through customs and immigration. Uh, that's really fun. And so you go down this elevator and escalator into this room and there's just hundreds and hundreds of people and they're just, it's like a line at Disneyland except there's actually no ride at the end. And so, you know, you go through and you wait and you go through and you wait. And so we're just going through. And uh, my son is with me and he's just so, he just, all he wants to do is get to Wendy's and get a hamburger. So we're just, this is, we're waiting and we're going through and finally it's our turn and we go up and we get, you know, we must have drawn the lucky card because we got this customs agent. And so we walk up and he's like, passports, please. He's sitting at his desk. So give him his passports. Now, I'm excited because I'm getting out of there. I'm on my way home and, you know, he's doing his job. So I'm like, hey, how are you doing today? And he just kind of, he doesn't even look at me. He's got a stamp and he's looking at my passport and he stamps and he says, I'm just sitting here stamping my life away. So I thought, oh, he's being funny. I'm like, oh, that's great. That's, that's great. And he looks at me and he says, takes my son's passport and he goes, I'm literally, boom, stamping my life away. And I was like, oh, not kidding. He said, but at least I get a raise in a couple of months and that'll make it all worthwhile. And as we walked away, all I could think about was imagine living a life like that. Imagine living a life that's just about stamping something and getting raises every now and then. What's really scary to me is the possibility that as believers, we would allow ourselves to spiral down into a spiritual life where we would become so controlling and so fearful of God and the plans that he has for us and so unwilling to go there that our lives could end up looking something like, like that when God has something so much more amazing for us. 
I want to read something in closing for you. This is what I wrote. It's a little something I wrote in my journal the, the day before we left. I read, I've been thinking about this day for months now. Part of me has been so excited to do this, to go to Nicaragua, despite all my reservations about the things that I know will be difficult. Things like flying, the heat, the humidity, the hard physical work, not speaking the language, the germs, the lack of control over my schedule, the potential illness. Still, I believe that I'm putting myself in a situation to hear God's voice and be stretched by Him. It's not that God can't do all that stuff right here at home, but in going to Nicaragua, I feel like I'm rushing headlong toward God and His plan for me, as opposed to sitting back and waiting for Him to shake me from the selfish and controlling person that I've become. I'm always saying that I want God to take me to the next level of Christ-like living, but now I'm actually doing something active to cooperate with God in the process. I'm running toward him.